we're doing this sermon series at um, our sister church on the east side, uh, New City Fellowship, and uh, we're also doing it in our Spanish congregation um, at one o'clock. So we're all doing the same thing. We even have a, a church over in Juarez, so Rene Barraza's brother, Andres, I believe, is following along with us uh, and doing the same series over there, and we've been collaborating. And, uh, so the pastors meet. In fact, we're going to meet tomorrow morning and talk about the upcoming week and get our thoughts together, and each sermon is going to be unique, of course, because we're all different, but um, we are going to cover the same material. Why is the book uh, of Samuel important? Well, there, you know, there's uh, lots, of, lots of reasons, I would say, why it's important. One of them is that, one of them is because out of this book comes the king of Israel, King David. And from David comes his son, many, many generations later, Jesus our Lord. So what happens in this book is of utmost importance. This is a book that is not just telling us history, but it's giving us deep theological things to look at and why David is that true king and what the qualifications uh, for that king is. So the, the title of our series is a kingdom in search of a king. Some people think God never intended for them to have a king, that he was always going to be their king. But in Deuteronomy, he told them, you'll want a king and I'll give you a king, but it has to be a king like I'm going to pick, a king that is after my own heart. And even then, because of the kings uh, being sinful, there's, a, there's a, a good chance they're going to mess up. And so you see a pattern that develops and in the nation under the rule of the judges that precedes the book of Samuel, you see a steady decline of God's people. The priesthood gets corrupted. Uh, the prophetic voice that they had enjoyed almost absent and there was no king. The judges themselves were even so flawed and so without the kinds of character that you would expect in leaders that the nation was falling into decay. In four places in the book of Judges, this exact phrase is used. In those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what is right in their own eyes. So there was no focus on God, no focus on his word, no, no looking at what he wanted for them. They were, they were all doing whatever seemed good to them. Hannah's life, we read about her barrenness, mirrors the life of the nation. The nation is also barren. It's fruitless. It's not accomplishing what it was designed to do. And Hannah is being mocked by her, her co-wife, if you want to call it, I don't know what you call that, the co-wife, because Elkanah, her husband, had two wives. Penina, the other wife, had lots of kids. Hannah couldn't have children. 
And so Panina is mocking her, making, vexing her, making her feel uh, bad, a shameful thing in those days for a woman to be barren and not be able to have children. And it mirrored the life of the nation. And so the nations around, this is another part of the connection, the, the nations around Israel had heard all these glorious stories of redemption, how they were brought out of Egypt by a strong arm and they got uh, into the land and conquered all their enemies and that the true God of heaven and earth was supposed to be abiding with them. But then the other nations, the Philistines and the Canaanites and all the other surrounding nations are looking at them and they're just mocking. They actually enslave them. They persecute. They wouldn't let them have weapons. They made them, if they had a, a, a sickle to harvest, they had to take it to, to the, the Philistine lands to be sharpened. They were under intense oppression. And judge after judge would deliver them, but then they would fall back into their same old ways. So this book is written not just to tell us the story of Hannah and Elkanah, but it's sending a signal to the people. Hannah will have a child. He will be born out of her barrenness. The prophetic voice will return to the land through the prophet Samuel. Samuel will be responsible for anointing the first two kings of Israel, Saul and David. And Samuel will also pronounce doom on the house of Eli, the house of the priesthood, the high priest Eli, whose family had corrupted the worship at the temple through extortion and sexual mal malfeasance and all kinds of things which we'll cover later on. So this mockery of the nations mirrors Penina's mockery of Hannah. Hannah's barrenness mirrors the life of the nation in general. And God in his goodness and grace in chapter 1 answers her prayer. She prays to him a prayer of deep grief and sorrow. Out of her, the, the brokenness of her heart, she's pouring out her heart to God. And God answers her. She gets pregnant. She pledges to give her, if you, if you give me a son, I will give him back to you all the days of his life. And sure enough, she gets pregnant. She has a son. She names him Samuel, a gift from the Lord. And then chapter 2 begins with this amazing song. I don't, I don't think we can overstate the importance of, of this song because its themes are repeated over and over through the Old Testament. The themes that she brings forward in this amazing song. It's not really a prayer. I know the commentaries and even my Bible my, uh, says the prayer of Hannah, but it's more than a prayer. She is praying. But it's not your general petitionary prayer. She's not asking for anything. She is exalting in what God has done. And she's praising and adoring and thanking him for what he has done. The prayer is only 10 verses. Now hear the word of God. It's in your bulletin or you can read it in your Bible if you have it. Hannah prayed and said, My heart exalts in the Lord. My horn is exalted in the Lord. My mouth 
derides my enemies because I rejoice in your salvation. There is none holy like the Lord. There is none beside you. There is no rock like our God. Talk no more very proudly. Let not arrogance come from your mouth. For the Lord is a God of knowledge. And by him actions are weighed. The bows of the mighty are broken. But the feeble bind on strength. Those who were full have hired themselves out for bread. But those who were hungry have ceased to hunger. The barren has borne seven, but she who has many children is forlorn. The Lord kills and brings to life. He brings down to Sheol and raises up. The Lord makes poor and makes rich. He brings low and he exalts. He raises up the poor from the dust. He lifts the needy from the ash heap to make them sit with princes and inherit a seat of honor for the pillars of the earth are the Lord's. And on them, he has set the world. He will guard the feet of his faithful ones, but the wicked shall be cut off in darkness, for not by might shall man prevail. The adversaries of the Lord shall be broken to pieces. Against them he will thunder in heaven. The Lord will judge the ends of the earth. He will give strength to his king and exalt the horn of his anointed. This is the word of the Lord. So what we could characterize this song or this prayer is it's, a, it's a, what, we, what we call a kingdom prayer. And your Bible is full of kingdom prayers. If you go through Psalms, you see these kingdom prayers. Psalm 2 is a, is a very clear Uh, kingdom prayer. There's many, many others where the focus is on God's rule and reign. What is his kingdom? His kingdom is not just Israel, although Israel embodied his kingdom. His kingdom is his rule and reign over all the earth, all things. He is a sovereign God, a king, and his providential hand is in everything and over all things. The church is not the kingdom of God. The church is, I explained in Sunday school this morning, the church is an embassy, an outpost for the kingdom. We are the ones who are the ambassadors. We're representing, if you will, the kingdom of God. So when we pray a kingdom prayer, we're not merely praying for the church and for the things about the people of God. It's not... uh, necessarily personal. It's about larger things. Hannah, in this psalm, it's really a psalm, it's shaped more like a psalm than a prayer, never mentions Samuel. She never mentions the answer to her prayer. Her focus is entirely on her relationship to God. It's very personal, very uh, individual, And at the same time, it encompasses everything that God values and thinks is important. So the way I've broken this, there's a lot of ways to break down her prayer, but I've done this. We're going to look first at the giver, not the gift. Her prayer is unique. It's all about God, not the gifts, not what he can do for us, but what he, not what we can do for him, but what he can do for 
we, what he does for us. Excuse me. Secondly, we're going to talk about the principle of the great reversal. We, we talked about this in, in the songs of ascent through the summer. Many of them are songs of, re, of reversal where God is talking about the fortunes of his people. And he says, I'm going to reverse these fortunes. The rich are going to become poor. The strong are going to be weak. Uh, uh, the ones that have plenty are going to be empty. All of those themes. Why? Why is God doing that? We'll talk about that, this great reversal. And finally, we're going to look at what many scholars have called the upside-down kingdom. An upside-down kingdom is what Jesus presented in the Beatitudes and in, in his Sermon on the Mount. It's a kingdom that's not like any other kingdom. And it is going to singularly create tension for all those that live in that kingdom. You can expect, if you become a Christian, not to be in power, not to have the world at your feet. You can expect persecution. You can expect, expect enemies. We're not the high, we're the low. And Jesus is telling his servants, you want in my kingdom, here's what it's going to look like. It's not going to look like this forever, but it's going to look like this until I come again. And if you want to be part of it, expect to be persecuted. Expect to be um, out of power, not in power. Expect to struggle with suffering, not to be absent or have, not have any suffering. Expect your heart to be broken. But also know that you will be full. Your needs will be met. I will never leave you and forsake you. I'll be with you to the end of the age. All of these other things. But there's tension. Palpable tension. And if you haven't felt that kind of tension, uh, you will if you become a Christian. We are looking for the all, we're looking for the not yet, the kingdom that is to come. But we're living in a present world where Jesus enjoined his servants to pray, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And this prayer really uh, mirrors and echoes those things. So let's get into it. Look at the the giver, not the gift. I mentioned the Lord's Prayer. This, this prayer has many of the themes and the motifs of the Lord's Prayer, but probably the strongest one is this. When we pray the Lord's Prayer, we pray, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Holy, holy, holy is your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. Forgive us our debts. Lead us not into temptation. Deliver us from the evil one. All of these themes you can see because the motif, the theme of the Lord's Prayer is God's honor. Listen carefully. We teach the journey, folks, this. If you're in the journey, this will be very familiar to you. God's honor, God's kingdom, God's provision, God's forgiveness, God's protection, God's power. The Lord's Prayer is a kingdom prayer. It's the quintessential kingdom prayer. 
highly individual us and our, the people of God together, petitioning God, calling out to God, praising God, but also acknowledging that all these things come from him. And look at the way Hannah's prayer mirrors this. My heart, my horn, the word horn translated is hard to translate or understand modern, but it means my, my strength, you know, the horn of a, a bull or an ox. They had these magnificent horns. It was a sign of power and virility, the ability to make and have children or offspring. My mouth opens or derides uh, in Hebrew. It's uh, my mouth opens wide like this over my enemies. Basically, it means my mouth is boasting over my enemies. My mouth is boasting. What is it boasting in? I rejoice in God's salvation. His salvation to Hannah was to give her a child. That was salvation for her. We think of salvation as dying and go to heaven, and that's true. That's a very, very small part of being saved, dying and going to heaven. There's a whole lot of other things of being saved. And so saved is not just that. And she's rejoicing because part of salvation for her was having a child and accomplishing her role in the kingdom of God and the nation of Israel. Deliverance from her shame, from her grief, and from the mockery of her rival, Panina. There is none holy like the Lord. Look at what she starts to say. There's nobody like you. Never mentions Samuel, never mentions this miraculous birth, nothing. There's just nobody like you. No one is holy. There's no one beside you. God is exclusive. We can create gods. In fact, we do. And we, make a, we do a good job of creating gods. We create all kinds of crazy gods. But they're not real gods. The Bible says they have eyes, but they cannot see. They have mouths, but they cannot speak. They have ears, but they cannot hear. And they have arms, but they cannot save. They're just dead. They're nothing. The creation of men and women, people. Hannah's song is, is going to places in theology that very few theologians ever go. She's plumbing depths of the identity of God and his people, you and I, us, our voice, our, our mouth, pray our heart to us. Look at verse 3. She warns. She's warning, I think, the, the, the idea in her mind as she's composing this prayer, she's warning Penina, who's been mocking her and making fun of her and putting her down and, and giving her all this grief over not having a baby. But broader than that, she doesn't mention Penina. She's talking about the nation, the surrounding people or anybody. We're so afraid when we turn on the media or you look on social media and people are slamming God and they're coming with all this. Do not fret. That's been going on since the Garden of Eden with the serpent telling us about God and lying to us about God and 
and, and giving us all kinds of distorted things about God. We, we, get to, we start ringing our hell, my goodness, we've got to answer. No, you don't have to answer everything. Sometimes you can and sometimes you should. But our confidence is not in us or our good arguments. What is our confidence in? It's in who he is. And people can talk all they want about there's no God or there's no this or that or God is this or that. They can do whatever they want. He has said who he is. And so she warns Penina and everybody else, don't talk proudly. Let not arrogance come out of your mouth. The Lord is a God of knowledge and everyone's actions are weighed. What he's saying is that God, what she's saying is, God is able to look inside beyond the superficial. He can look down inside the thoughts and the motives of our hearts. Sometimes he looks and look, I can only use myself. I don't like to, but he, he can look into my heart and he'll see a lot of good motives. I have good motives. Surprisingly enough, I do have good motives. But mixed up with those motives is what? My own selfishness, my frailty, my humanity, my fear, my doubt, my pride, all mixed up. My wrong thinking, you name it. So these things are in there and they're, they're struggling with one another. And where do I have to go in order to reorient myself? I go to God because he is a God of knowledge and he weighs our actions He's the one, folks, that even my wife, Marty V, and I have been married 40, gosh, I'm going to get in trouble for this. I don't know, 45, 45 or 46? Are we on 46? Not yet? It seems like 100 years. No, it's 40, 45 years. We've been married 45 years, and I can tell you she knows me very well. In fact, there's a lot of things I don't want her to know. But she does know them. But even she doesn't know me down to the bottom. And neither can you. Think about this. God knows you down to the bottom. He knows you at the very basis level. And he still loves you. Still cares for you. Still wants you. Truly remarkable. What does God know? Very quickly, here's what he knows. We know that he knows this, that beneath the surface of our carefully constructed lives, this superficial, this outward construction that everybody does and everybody makes, how we want the world to see us, our identities, our power as nations, as people groups and as individuals, we're all busy constructing facades. And even now, people are, you know, this is the thing. I identify as this or I identify as that. I identify as male or female or whatever, anything. This is heartbreaking. and This should break our hearts that our culture and our people, that human beings have lost such an anchor that they are searching for something to anchor themselves in. How, how sad and how pathetic that they have to go for something like that to identify as a tulip. 
or I identify as a him, her, they, them, it, whatever it is. It's heartrending. I can't laugh about it. Maybe some of you are laughing. Shame on you. I saw you. We'll talk later. You know, there's demerits that go along with that. The treasury of merit in heaven is going to be, we're going to ding your treasury of merit. All right. So think about it. A loss of identity. Something that can never happen to you if you won't let it. You can never question your identity. I belong to Jesus Christ. He marked me through the waters of baptism. I'm His and I'm His not because that I am assenting to be His, but because He has condescended to be mine. He's promised me. He's promised MJ. He's promised every one of you that's been baptized. He's promised your children you're mine. Your identity is secure and she is just hammering it away at a, at a level you just can't believe this woman. What a theologian she is. And then the great reversal. This is much of the Psalms and the Sermon on the Mount. You know, you know when, when there are so many connections in an Old Testament passage that are directly almost one-to-one corresponding with New Testament ideas and thoughts, boy, there's no question about it that she is saying something about the kingdom of God, which was the singular, most often spoken about topic of who? Jesus the King. No one talked about the kingdom of God more than him. Any wonder that she is talking about him? Here's just, we can't go through all these, and I'm not going to because we're short of time this morning. From the Beatitudes, just listen. Blessed are the poor in spirit, theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, they'll inherit the earth. Blessed are those that hunger and thirst after righteousness, they will be what? Filled. Every You can go through all of these reversals in 4 through 8. We can't do it. The bows of the mighty broken, the feeble bind on strength. The full hire themselves out. Those that are hungry are full. The barren has seven. Those that are full have nothing. They're forlorn. On and on it goes. The hallmark, let me just say this, and and please write this somewhere in your heart, in your Bible, on your hand, someplace. The hallmark of God's kingdom is for the least, the last, and the lost. He has a special place in his heart for the weak, the marginalized, the poor, and he warns the rich and those that are holy. He warns them, don't put your confidence in this. But he has this soft spot for these people. The poor in spirit. Now why do you think he does that? Why would God discriminate? Think about it. I want to put your thinking caps on. Why would God discriminate 
and have special feelings for the poor and the weak and the marginalized, the least, the last, and the lost. Why? What about all of us that have it all together? Do you get the irony of that? He loves the least, the last, and the lost, the marginalized, the weak, the poor, because that's everybody. Yeah? Say yes, please. Yes. That is everyone. Don't fool yourselves. You know, one of the Proverbs says, money is like a bird. It sprouts wings and it flies away. And every one of us have had money and lost money. It's hard to get, easy to let go. It flies away. You cannot trust these things. It's okay to have them. But underneath all of that is a real intrinsic, innate weakness because we are fallen creatures. Sin is always crouching at the door as as he was at the door of Cain. God warned him, sin is crouching. Don't let it overtake you. And Hannah brings all of that. Look at verse 9. He will guard his faithful ones, but the wicked he will cut off out of darkness. Not by might shall man prevail. Ultimately, God is a God of justice. And none of you, none of us should ever fear that at the end of time, at the end of the day, or even in our lives right now, that God will make some mistake and some good person that really would have liked to have gone to heaven and and all of that didn't get to go. That God's just going to look at him and say, oh, you didn't check off the box of uh, joining Christ the King, so you're not going to heaven. That was funny whether you liked it or not. Oh, you didn't check off the box of always loving your neighbor. You didn't check off this box, this box. That's not how it's going to be, folks. He is going to make a just and right judgment for everybody. That Personally, that terrifies me. And I know that I'll be standing in the dock and I'm going to be like this, naked, which you don't want to remember or think about. And I'm going to be there and I'm going to be waiting and all the, you know, these screens are going to be showing my whole life, all my motives, because he knows everything, knows all the what was behind our new ways, our thoughts. Thanks a lot for that. And I'm standing there and I can see all that stuff. I'm going, my gosh, what am I going to do? And I can feel that on the scales of judgment, I'm losing. The, the judgment is weighing me down. And right at the point of crushing me, I feel a, 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 someone come beside me, my advocate, my lawyer, And he doesn't just come to defend me. He comes and he steps on that scale. In fact, he takes me out of the scale and he gets himself in the scale. And then he appeals to God, his father, and he says, Now, Father, Chuck has been trusting me. Give him what he deserves. That ought to shake you to your core. Give him what he deserves. Me and everything I have earned, give it to him. And the father's glad to do it. In fact, that's what he planned this whole thing. It was his idea to take you out of the scale and put his son in there for you and as you. 
He will guard his faithful ones, but the wicked he will cut off in darkness. Dot my mind. We don't have... Don't ever go into the dock and say, God, look, I've been a good person. I've tried my best. You have nobody's tried their best. That's a bald-faced lie. We don't try our best. We try until we don't try. Think about what she is singing, this song of praise that she's singing. And finally, this upside down. I wish I could say more, but we're running out of time. I've taken more time than I thought. Look at verse 10. The Lord has broken the adversaries to pieces. He's thundered against them in heaven. God, the Lord will judge the ends of the earth. He will give strength to his king, exalt the horn of his anointed. The word anointed is Mashiach. It means Christ. It means king. He will anoint his king and he will shatter to pieces all the enemies of this king. He will judge the ends of the earth. Well, folks, he didn't do it for Jesus Christ. He didn't do it. The king, the one king that was anointed, that was truly the son of God, the one that, you, are you, you think the Bible's not talking about reversals? In the greatest reversal in a cosmic reversal in all of history of the universe, there has never been a reversal like this where the just judge, the just, yes, he can promise this to us because Jesus did not get that. He had to go into the grave with the thundering and on the cross, the thundering of God's wrath falling on him. Now Hannah, even his mother Mary, when she sang this in the Magnificat, they didn't understand all that, but folks, you do. I've just told you. And in our Christianity, which is different than some, we don't ever want to hold out our strength and our power and our abilities and our giftedness although many of you have gifts and you should use them, but we don't want to depend. We have to depend on something else, a king on a cross. That's as reversal as you can get. That's as upside down as you can get. The apostle Paul was standing before uh, King Agrippa. Agrippa said to him, you almost persuade me, Paul, to be a king or to be a, a, a Christian. You almost persuade me. And Paul said, I wish that you and everybody else would be like me. Except for these chains. And scholars have said, that on that day in that court that the Apostle Paul was the freest man in that court. How can you be free? How can you be free of the sins and the chains and the, the idolatries and all the junk that holds us down? Look to your king who reversed it, actually put death to death 
so that you wouldn't have to suffer? No, so you could. And do it redemptively to the world around you. Will you trust him? I hope you will. Father, we thank you for your kindness and your mercy. And I don't know, as we think about that little beautiful little child this morning, all those promises that you've made to us, you've made to her, to our families. Father, fill us with your blessed Holy Spirit so that we uh, can embrace these truths and live our lives in a way that is completely distinct than the world around us. Exceedingly generous, exceedingly kind, exceedingly loving. A life of sacrifice and service because we're, we are the least the last, and the lost. In Christ's name we pray.